comprehensive, relevant, and insightful conversations about health and medicine happen here at MedStar Health Doc Talk. Today, we're discussing advancements in the treatment of gastrointestinal cancers such as pancreatic cancer, esophageal cancer, and colorectal cancer. We're talking today with Dr. Ben Weinberg, a gastrointestinal medical oncologist at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. Dr. Weinberg, welcome to Doc Talk. Thanks for having me. So let's start with what are some of the most recent advancements for targeted treatments for patients with any kind of GI cancer? Yeah, so when we're talking about GI cancers, we're talking about a pretty broad uh, variety of different types of tumors. Uh, But despite that, you know, we are now more knowledgeable that maybe it doesn't matter as much where your tumor came from. Maybe it matters more what's driving your tumor on a molecular level. And now that drug development has proceeded to this point, we now have drugs that we can use that got what we call tumor agnostic approvals. The FDA didn't care where the tumor started. It cared what molecular alteration the patient's tumor had. And sort of the best example, and we'll be talking about immunotherapy more in, I think, a few minutes, but there have been a couple approvals for immune therapy where it didn't matter where the tumor started as long as the tumor had a characteristic called microsatellite instability high or a certain number of mutations called a total um, or a tumor mutational burden of greater than 10. Those indications allowed patients to receive pembrolizumab regardless of where their tumor started. There are also a variety of targets that we think that tumor cells use to grow and that these are often not found in normal cells and thus can be exploited uh, using a drug as a druggable target. And one example is BRAF. So BRAF, uh, B-R-A-F, is a gene that's mutated in about half of melanoma skin cancers. It's seen in about you know, 10-11% of metastatic colorectal cancer. And it's seen at a low frequency in a variety of other solid tumors as well. And only recently did a combination of a drug that targets BRAF and a cousin that targets a similar spot on the cascade called MEK, M-E-K. Two drugs that target those two targets got approved. They've been using this in melanoma skin cancer for quite some time. Now we use that combination in other solid tumors. And in metastatic colorectal cancer, we actually discovered that combining BRAF with a drug we already use, drugs that target the EGFR pathway or epidermal growth factor receptor pathway, such as cetuximab or panitumab, those drugs combined with a BRAF inhibitor uh, work very well for patients with um, BRAF V600E mutated metastatic colorectal cancer. And only very recently, just within the last month or so, end of 2022, beginning 2023, published in the New England Journal, which is our Bible, uh, targeting a new mutation in a gene called KRAS, KRAS uh, G12C. KRAS is a gene that's been difficult to target for decades, and there's actually an institute in Frederick, Maryland, under the National Cancer Institute that is solely dedicated to targeting KRAS, we now finally have drugs in the clinic that can actually target KRAS, but only the specific mutation called G12C. And these are drugs that seem to work well in lung cancer that has KRAS G12C mutations. They seem to work well in pancreatic obiliary cancers with KRAS G12C mutations. And they seem to work in colorectal cancer, especially, again, combined with an anti-EGFR drug. So two Papers published simultaneously in the New England Journal, one focusing on KRAS G12C pancreatic cancer, another focused on KRAS G12C colorectal cancer, show that these drugs have activity and can shrink tumors in targets we previously thought were not druggable. 
So this is very exciting. Now we, again, need to make it work for everybody. So there's drugs in development targeting KRAS G12D, which is more common mutation seen in pancreas cancer, colorectal cancer. And we're hopeful and optimistic that these drugs can really lead to change in not just smaller subsets of patients, but larger subsets. And following the lung cancer model, where they previously had basically two types of lung cancer, they had small cell cancer and they had non-small cell cancer. Well, now lung cancer is hundreds of different cancers because they've identified molecular subtypes and they have drugs that can target it. And our hope is that diseases like pancreatic cancer, which historically have had no druggable targets, now we're starting to chop it up into smaller and smaller pieces of the pie. And yes, there are rare mutations that only work in a rare population of patients, but if you come up with enough of them, now you've gotten to a point where you actually have more smart bombs you know, that can target patients' tumors versus dumb bombs, which are things like chemotherapy. So it sounds like this is a promising time for cancer research and cancer drug development because we're learning a lot more, a lot of up-and-coming studies. Now, I want to follow up on something you said a minute ago. GI cancers is a broad term. So what role does identifying exactly what GI cancer we're dealing with have in determining the correct treatment for a patient? Right. So gastrointestinal cancers often sort of get lumped together. Uh, they are unique subtypes such as you know, colon cancer, rectal cancer falls, falls into one basket, pancreatic biliary tumors like gallbladder cancers, biliary cancers, pancreas cancers, hepatocellular cancer, which is a different type of liver cancer, and then really upper GI cancers like esophageal cancer, gastroesophageal junction cancer and gastric cancer. So those are kind of the big buckets. The last one um, is really anal cancer, which is kind of a different uh, behaving tumor, uh, but that also gets lumped into GI cancers. So let's talk about immunotherapy. We just talked about targeted treatments and research. Have there been any recent advancements in using immunotherapy to treat these GI cancers? Right. So immunotherapy is very promising and is a sea change, a revolution in, in medical oncology. And for the most part, I feel like our tumors historically have been left behind. Melanoma, lung, non-small cell lung cancer, leading the way in the development of these types of um, therapies. There are some bright spots, though. So a rare group of patients with metastatic colorectal cancer, this microsatellite instability high look that I mentioned earlier, these tumors are very sensitive to immune therapy. And we now think immunotherapy actually works better than chemotherapy is traditionally how these patients were treated. Only about 4% of patients with advanced metastatic disease, but in that group, one immunotherapy or two immunotherapy drugs combined together seems to work exquisitely well in in the majority of patients, and they may not need chemotherapy. Uh, We now know, based on data that's been shown over the last year or so, that these drugs also seem to work in earlier stage non-metastatic tumors that have this microsatellite instability, higher MSI high look to them. Um, both in the rectal space as well as in the uh, early stage colon space where patients get immune therapy and may not need surgery. They may not need things like radiation for rectal cancer. So that's been very promising that some of these interventions that seem to work fairly well in the advanced setting actually work even better in earlier stage setting. Again, in this rare subset of patients, only about 15% of folks with localized rectal cancer. The other bright spots for immunotherapy have been in upper GI cancers, so gastric cancer, esophageal cancer. Immunotherapy seems to work when combined with chemotherapy in the frontline metastatic setting. Uh, It seems to work better in patients that have more of a marker for immunotherapy, something called PD-L1. So we always test patients' tumors to see if they're in this microsatellite instability high group, which, again, seems to benefit from immunotherapy across the board, regardless of tumor type. 
But in the upper GI space, PDL1 as a biomarker, although somewhat controversial, seems to predict who's going to respond better from the addition of immunotherapy on top of chemotherapy. And then in the hepatocellular carcinoma space, these liver cancers, they also seem to be uh, responding very well to immune therapy, either given by itself or with drugs that target the vascular endothelial growth factor receptor pathway or VEGF pathway, like atezole, like bevacizumab combined with atezolizumab, which is an immunotherapy drug. So there's uh, been a variety of advancements um, in across GI cancers where immunotherapy, we think, can be beneficial. Where we're trying to crack the code is in other tumors like pancreatic cancer, which historically has been very, what we call immune cold. Immunotherapy by itself seems to have no activity, and even the microcellulite instability high pancreas tumors, which are pretty rare, respond to immunotherapy, but not as well as their counterparts in other um, upper GI cancers and lower GI cancers. So we are um, involved in a number of clinical trials trying to combine immunotherapy with other targeted drugs and other immunotherapies in patients with pancreatic cancer. So let's switch gears for a second and talk about ctDNA. And for anyone who doesn't know, that means circulating tumor DNA. Can you first tell me what that is and then also get into how that affects patients, how we use that in patients with GI cancers? Right. So circulating tumor DNA or ctDNA has also been another kind of parallel revolution over the last several years in medical oncology. And what we hope it is, which it's not quite yet, is kind of the holy grail where we're trying to decide who, after a potentially curative surgery like for colon cancer, needs chemo and who doesn't. We don't yet have a good test to predict that. And we're hoping and optimistic that this could be that test. But what ctDNA is, is we think tumors shed DNA uh, and cells that seem to divide more rapidly, especially certain tumor types, tend to shed more DNA. And that DNA is abnormal. And we now have the technology to pick this up in a blood test. So to pick up circulating tumor DNA from the bloodstream and to sort it out into what DNA is normal appearing DNA and what DNA is abnormal appearing DNA. And some of that abnormal appearing DNA is tumor DNA. And we can do several things. We can do DNA sequencing on it to see what is abnormal about it. Uh, But we can also use it as a blood test for something we call minimally residual disease. So if someone we think is cured, they should not have any circulating tumor DNA present in their bloodstream. If they do, that is a bad sign. And typically, we think that means that they are not cured and that the tumor is out there somewhere. And at some point in time, it is likely to come back. Most of the data we have so far comes from colorectal cancer, which is a tumor type that sheds a lot. Other tumors like sarcomas, for example, don't seem to shed as much. So how useful it is as a test probably depends on what cancer type you're talking about and what you know situation, clinical scenario you're in. But as I say, for many years, really for over a century, when we try to decide after a colorectal surgery whether a patient should get more chemo or not, we are basing it on 19th century technology, which is our pathologist report. They dutifully will sit there and count how many lymph nodes had tumor in them. They will look at how many layers of the colon or rectal wall the tumor penetrated through. And those characteristics, with a few others, is what we've been using to decide who should get chemotherapy to enhance, to improve the odds that that patient will be cured. The surgery does most of the work. It's really the chemo that's buying a little bit of insurance. But we know some patients really don't benefit from chemo. So why give it to them? We're just hurting them. And then we know some patients will have surgery, chemo, and they'll still recur. So what do we do for them? So this is a hot area of research because we hope we might be able to spare patients chemotherapy if it wouldn't have helped them, 
And in some patients where we know they're at very high risk of recurrence, maybe we should be giving them more chemo, not less. So those uh, questions are being answered in prospective randomized clinical trials that we are currently conducting to see, can we get away with observation in patients who are ctDNA negative, or should we give more chemotherapy to patients who are ctDNA positive because we know they are at such high chance of recurring? The bright spot is if you have a colon or rectal surgery and we test your blood after surgery and your circulating tumor DNA is positive, detectable, it's not actually the end of the world. It's not a good finding, but if we can give chemotherapy and convert those patients to no circulating tumor DNA detectable after chemo, we think those patients may do just as well or almost as well as patients who were negative the whole time. So those are the patients we think actually do exquisitely benefit from chemotherapy in that setting, and those are the patients who we're helping. So we need to have a better, what my boss John Marshall would call a sorting hat. Who needs chemo? Who needs how much chemo? Who needs two chemos versus one chemo? We're hoping that you know this type of technology can help answer those questions. Yes, yeah, so you touched on this, and I want to follow up just a bit more in depth. What does the future to you look like in terms of having patients come in, and you not only decide what the best treatment is, you see how they respond, you have a better understanding of, of when they're in remission and stuff like that. What does it look like? Right. So, you know, we still use what I would call somewhat old technology. So we have a patient, especially someone with more advanced cancer. We do CAT scans. We do MRIs. We see, is the tumor shrinking? Is it growing? We have generic tumor markers, things like CEA, CA199. These are blood tests that are not specific to an individual's tumor the same way a circulating tumor DNA test can be. But we use those to guide us. Is our treatment working? Is it not working? And we use, you know, a very dumb empiric method. We start with the chemo that we think is, has the highest likelihood of working, the highest likelihood of tumor shrinkage, and when that either stops working or the patient doesn't tolerate it anymore, we go to chemo number two or chemo number three. And so we hope that in the future, as we've accumulated all of this data about tumor DNA sequences and what pathways are upregulated in some people's tumors versus others, we can be a little smarter about it. Maybe some patients really should not get chemo one first. They should get chemo two first. Or maybe chemo three really is not going to work for that patient. So we're getting there, but we still have a ways to go in terms of trying to figure out, you know, how to use all the data. And we work with some companies that have algorithms that, you know, you spit your molecular profile into and they spit out whether they think that chemo is going to work or not. You know, this seems to work better in populations of patients than the individual patients sitting in front of you. But we are getting smarter and using things like AI and some of these models and algorithms to try to predict, you know, who's likely to benefit from one treatment versus another. Getting smarter, moving forward, more targeted therapies, hopefully becoming available soon for these patients. Now, when someone comes to MedStar Georgetown and is diagnosed with a GI cancer, they're going to see you or one of your colleagues, a medical oncologist, but they're not just going to see you. They're going to see a whole wide array of people because we offer a lot of medical experts to our patients. Why is it important to have a multidisciplinary care team when it comes to patients with these localized GI cancers like rectal and pancreatic cancer? Right. So it's really imperative, I think, for patients to have a multidisciplinary care team, regardless of their tumor site of diagnosis. But I think there are certain situations where it's imperative to have a multidisciplinary team and a multidisciplinary tumor board discussion. And this is something that we offer in sort of at Georgetown and in academic settings, which I think is hard to recapitulate in the community setting where you can get a medical oncologist, a radiation oncologist, a surgeon, a pathologist, a radiologist, a nutritionist, a geneticist, 
everybody under in one room to really find the best care plan for that patient moving forward. And there are certain situations, rectal cancer being the one that kind of jumps to the top of the list, where it is a true multidisciplinary endeavor. You don't want to just go straight to surgery most of the time. You don't want to just go straight to chemo most of the time. You don't want to go straight to radiation most of the time. You really have to figure out what's going to happen at the beginning and then adapt as things move forward. So it involves really very good upfront staging. So we need expert you know, MRI technicians, expert radiologists to interpret MRIs for rectal cancer, for example, to know what stage of tumor we're dealing with, because that will sort of help predict, you know, what type of treatments we will or will not choose from. And for rectal cancer, sometimes we give chemotherapy first, sometimes we give chemo radiation first, sometimes we do radiation by itself. And nowadays we're doing surgery last, whereas usually historically we do either surgery first or in the middle. So the field has shifted dramatically. And this is something that we, again, try to tailor to each individual patient and and each individual's patient tumor as to, you know, what are the steps that we should do. And that's something, again, where we need good baseline staging, we need input from all parties involved, and then we need to execute that plan. And those are things that are best accomplished in a multidisciplinary care team. So rectal cancer is one, pancreatic cancer is the other one that jumps up for localized pancreatic cancer. Now we're dealing with a very complicated surgical approach, and you know we're trying to get the patient to a surgery that could potentially cure them. And same thing, nowadays we try to stack the deck and give all sorts of planned chemotherapy and radiation before the surgery and sometimes some chemotherapy after surgery, whereas historically things were more of a surgery first approach. So the fields in in both landscapes have evolved dramatically. And to stay on top of the most recent data, to stay on top of the most recent surgical radiation medical oncology techniques, we really have to meet constantly. And we do this on a weekly or sometimes bi-weekly basis to try to generate the best care plans moving forward for patients. So when you come to Dementia Georgetown, you're going to see a lot of people, but there's even more people behind the scenes working as part of these teams to get you the best care, the best treatment, to understand what's going on inside you with your cancer. So there's a lot of work that goes into it, even if you're just seeing primarily a couple people. Let's move into liver-directed therapies. Can you tell me about some of the most recent advancements for liver-directed therapies for patients who have metastatic colorectal cancer to the liver? And also, what does that mean? Right. So one of the reasons why patients with metastatic colorectal cancer often succumb to their disease is due to liver involvement. So we sort of tell patients we're fighting two parallel battles. We want to fight the tumor in the liver, but we're also fighting to protect normal liver function because if the liver starts getting mad at us and doesn't work as well, it's hard to treat those patients. It's hard to give them effective chemotherapies and other therapies just because the liver processes most of these drugs. So we are always looking at ways that we can directly target the liver. So there are things like chemotherapy that go throughout the body, but there are certain interventions we can do directly into the liver. The oldest kind of most basic is things like bland embolization, where our radiology colleagues will go in and block uh, an artery or a vein to try to starve the tumor that way. Version 2.0 are things like chemoembolization, where they will go in through an artery in the groin and inject microscopic chemotherapy-eluting beads, again, designed to directly cook the tumor in the liver. Version 3.0, is which what we do a lot of, is what we call... Um, radioembolization or tear, where, again, through an artery, but inject microscopic radiation-eluting beads using often a isotope called yttrium-90. And again, these beads will go further and further into the tree branches in the blood uh, circulation in the liver, 
land next to the tumor and kind of cook the tumor locally while sparing the normal liver. And these are treatments that can't be done many times because normal tissue only tolerates so much radiation. But these can sort of buy some time for to stun the tumor in the liver as we're focusing on other systemic treatments, again, because we want to protect the liver and make it keep it on our good side, if you will, so it can continue to work for us. The other more advanced techniques that have kind of come to light more recently are more advanced surgical techniques. So one is something that we actually just started recently at MedStar Georgetown, which is hepatic arterial infusion pumps, where a surgeon will implant a pump that directly bathes the liver artery supply with continuous uh, five fluorouracil-like chemotherapy. And this can work to shrink tumors. It can work to kind of prevent uh, tumors from developing in patients who undergo liver surgery for metastatic colorectal cancer. Uh, It has a variety of potential use, uh, use cases, but we think it can be helpful in select patients. The other strategy, which works kind of in a different way, is liver transplant. So a little different than the transplants we think about patients who are very sick from liver cirrhosis who need a a dead donor's liver on a transplant list. This is a little different. This is where we would get a living donor, uh, someone you know who you could identify to be a potential donor to give part of their liver. Your entire liver is removed, and then the transplanted liver is placed in. But this is, again, for a very select group of patients, their primary colon tumor or rectal tumor has to be removed usually some period of time ahead of time. Uh, There can't be any sites of disease outside the liver in the primary tumor because if there is, the tumor will grow back because the patient will have to go on immunosuppressive drugs to help prevent rejection of this transplanted uh, liver. So it's for a very, very select group of patients, but we do see these patients, often young patients who present with a colon cancer and extensive liver uh, metastases that cannot be removed surgically. So we either try to start usually with some chemotherapy, pause, take out the primary tumor, then focus on the liver, either with this radiation approach or uh, the pump approach or the transplant approach. And then there are others that I didn't describe, such as ablation, where you can stick a needle and burn or freeze a a spot that's growing. So suffice to say, this is, again, something that is best discussed in the context of a multidisciplinary tumor board discussion, where our interventional radiologists, our radiation oncologists, our surgeons can try to figure out what's the best approach for that patient. In terms of trying to develop new drugs, new clinical trials, which is a lot of what I do and we do at at our cancer center, is to try to find new targeted drugs on one hand and new immunotherapy approaches on the other hand, and then sometimes combining the two. So again, we see patients with rare genetic alterations in their tumors that we may have an early phase clinical trial that Uh, could be useful to target that specific alteration. Sometimes these are phase one trials. Sometimes they're first in human trials. But in phase one trials, we are generally giving different doses of a new medicine to see what the safe and tolerable dose is. We want to see if the drug works, but that's not the primary motivation in those types of early phase clinical trials. But sometimes, again, if we find the right trial for the right patient, these can be good opportunities to you know, give patients access to a new drug and also learn about the drug side effects and how well the drug works or not. And then com- combinatorial approaches. So I'm particularly excited about a new immunotherapy trial we just opened in pancreas cancer based on my boss's boss, Dr. Lou Wiener's uh, science from his lab, combining an immunotherapy drug, pembrolizumab, with a new drug called BioXL701. And we think this combination can work to make a cold tumor like pancreatic cancer respond Uh, to immune cells and to try to get the body's own immune system to go after the pancreas tumor that way. 
So there are a variety of approaches that we're using. That's just one example, but exciting where, you know, previously we didn't think that these drugs had any real effect on these types of cancers. And now we're seeing that maybe they do. And another kind of exciting reason to explore what clinical trials that are available for, for patients. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Dr. Weinberg. We hope you've enjoyed learning about advancements in the treatment of gastrointestinal cancers. We've been talking today with Dr. Ben Weinberg with MedStar Georgetown University Hospital in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Dr. Weinberg, for sharing your expertise here on MedStar Health Doc Talk. For more information on gastrointestinal cancer treatment at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, visit medstarhealth.org slash services slash gastrointestinal dash cancers or call 202-444-2223.